Are you looking for freedom? Freedom from the daily grind and hustle? Or just finding a way to live the life you always wanted? Then join us on the Investing for Freedom podcast. Our host, Mike Ayala, will help you discover new ways to find freedom with tips, insights, and interviews. You'll learn the exact systems he's used to travel the world and live his best life. True success and happiness are all about freedom. And here's your roadmap on how to find freedom on your own terms. Welcome to the Investing for Freedom podcast. Here's your host, Mike Ayala. Hey guys, it's Mike Ayala here. Um, I wanted to tell you guys about something that you're actually going to hear today. Damian Lupo and I have uh, recently started a show called The MD Show. And we're super passionate about this and where this kind of all was born. Damien and I have spent a lot of time over the last couple of years uh, on weekly calls, sometimes twice a week. And we were just talking about, you know, some of the conversation and the information that we get into is just so amazing that we wanted to share it with the world. And so we decided to launch what we're calling the MD show. It's live every week. You can catch it at the MD show So just go to the MD show And what you're going to hear today is a podcast episode. The audio is from the latest MD show that we did with uh, me and Damien. So hopefully you enjoy it and uh, don't forget to come join us every week live. You'll be able to interact. Um, and again, go to the mdshowlive.com. There he is. Eric, hey, what's up, my man? What is happening? Well, things are calming down in the world, huh? Yeah, sounds like it. Uh, no. <laughs> No, that's why you have you have a flashing freedom behind you. Yeah, it's red exactly. alert. Oh wow! Here, why don't you talk about something and I'll change that. <laughs> <laughs> this is keeping. It's like the plant in the background gives people something to look at. Uh, you know, I was I was looking at at the markets this last week and just I guess my my big question that I ask is not only what is happening but what's happening that's beyond what we're seeing. Meaning, I think we always have to look a little deeper. Because with money, there's always what we think is true, and then there's what's actually true. And it's like when you're looking at a deal or or you're going on a date, you're like, okay, who is the person that's actually there? Not the person that's showing up trying to pretend that's the person. So it's always like, like we're hearing one thing in the news, and then what's actually happening? Because I hear my friends talking about what they just heard on CNN or Fox, and I'm laughing. I'm like, have you thought about this, or are you just a parrot? Like That's what yeah. people do, though. They don't think. It's so true. Art. Are you, uh, are you good to go on Instagram or do you No, I don't know if I can get this thing live. Um, okay. I can, it, I will, uh, we'll attempt it. It's no big deal. Let's see. Insta. See if it, it'll, I don't know if it'll pick up my voice, but I am on and I am, I've joined. Nice. Cool. You know, at, on that note, what you were saying too, I, I don't know. Were you on the go abundance call last night? No, huh? It was kind of interesting because they brought on, you know, some, some people from different parts of the world, people that had family in Ukraine and, you know, just different areas. And there was, it was very enlightening because people from, and it wasn't just Ukraine, it was different countries as well. And just seeing, uh, you know, different people's viewpoints from different areas. Uh, you know, we were having a conversation this morning in, in our old GoPod group and just talking about diff different perspectives, right? Because yeah. sometimes there's like, there's thousands of years of um, history there too. So that's like another version of it. Like you were saying, you know, sometimes the person that you're sitting across from, is this the real person? Is it, there's so many different viewpoints and opinions and information too. It's bad. It, it is. I mean, it's, it, it's really fascinating that I don't think most people actually know any history when they, when we look backwards, you, see, you know, th thousands of years. And yet, what do we know about the last hundred years or even the last 20 years? And we, we had a, we have a weekly meeting with my team. And one of the things we do is a leadership lesson. Fortunately, I have a Lieutenant Colonel United States Marine that does these things. And so he brought up the background of Ukraine and it was really fascinating because I had no idea what, what had really taken place and how it was part of the, the USSR and the transition and the time frame and when it broke off and when Russia went in with Crimea and all these different things. And we, we're not really digging into that. It's just about fear. It's about getting people to react and, and then manipulating. And so I think we have to go a little bit deeper, really in, de in general, if we're just going to Pollyanna, put our head in the sand and think everything's going to be okay. Like I get it, Bob Marley, but that's probably not going to be enough for, for reality. It's like, that whole, that book thinking for a change and, and those, those types of thinking, the realistic thinking, the, the pragmatic thinking, the pessimistic thinking, the deep thinking, like we need to practice all these things. And this is a great example of it. And, and I look at that, I look at the last couple of years and if it's not one thing, it's the next thing to keep us focused on 
crisis. Yeah. And I, I think that that's the biggest the biggest challenge. We've got to be willing to step back and not be in the fight and go, what's what's true? Yeah, it's uh, I, I think I sent you this meme or whatever the other day. It, um, it was a thing that popped up and, you know, and I'm not making small of, of the war and what's going on over there because it's a real it's a real situation. But it, it popped up in my feed and it said um, it's World War Three season already. I still have my covid decorations up. And so what you're talking like going from crisis to crisis and it's just crazy to me, like all of a sudden, like we're so distracted. And again, we mentioned this last week, but it makes me wonder, like, what the hell is really going on? Yeah, and I wonder if if you when you start thinking about big big things that are going to happen, and what's the biggest thing that can happen? There's war. What's bigger than war? The monetary system because it impacts everybody everywhere. And when you think about changing the monetary system, you need some serious chaos to yeah. cover a change in the monetary system because otherwise people say, "Wait a second, They'll ask questions like, "How is this going to hurt me?" Look look at the Russian ruble. It's it's dropped fifty percent in the last two weeks, mm-hmm. and so that's impacting people being pulled off a of swift by the main banks in in Russian. And so, all, if we have a huge transformation, and I say if almost tongue in cheek because we are having a we are having a, a change. The 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 monetary system we have is going through a rebirth or a complete change, collapse, whatever you want to call it, and you need something to distract people. It's like, Hey, look over here while we change everything over here. And that's, that may be part of what's going on. I I think we have to be skeptical because when you have global changes, just like with pandemic or whatever you're talking about, we need to ask better questions and we need to say, no, it's not okay to just tell me to do it as I'm told. We need to be willing to push back and, and not just accept things at face value because it's clear we're being manipulated. Like that's just in general, the media is not our friend anymore. Not, not the quote unquote mainstream media. We've got to ask better questions. You know, I, I don't know that you and I talked about this, but I remember, I don't know, it's probably two weeks ago. Um, it was, uh, Jeff, Jeff Bullard, I think with the St. Louis fed. And he was talking about, he said, let me see if I can, I don't know when it was, it was February 17th. He said that, I, I don't know if you saw this headline, but he was, uh, the, I think he's the former president or no, he's the current president. Inflation could get out of control, so action is needed now. Yeah. Nobody was talking about this. Like it was kind of like when the Fed says that, and then you know we're talking about interest rates going up, interest rates going down, and everybody's thinking about like home payments. It just what you just said reminds me of that. It was like I think everybody all of a sudden realized like how serious this is, and then all of a sudden we're just distracted. Well, and I mean, it's and we we look at things and we don't we don't ask. Wait, what are we comparing this to? And I give you a great example of that during the State of the, the Union address. President Biden made a comment that we had the biggest growth. I, I forget what it was, six point some seven million jobs or something. And and people are, of course, the certain part of the of Congress was clapping and cheering, and people are like, "Yeah, that's really good." But what are you comparing it to? You're comparing it to the biggest drop in, in employment in however many decades. So year over year or month over month, if we're comparing, we've got to ask, what are we comparing it to? When you have a drop off in in pricing because there's a collapse in the economy and then the prices go down, well, of course, a year later, you're going to say, oh, prices have gone up, inflation's gone up. George Gammon talks about this because you, you've got to be looking at what you're comparing it to. And, and people don't, they, they, we're very much in a cognitive bias state where we look towards recency or we don't even look at all. We just look at what's in front of us and whatever we're being told. And I think that's becoming a big problem because things like inflation, what's really true. And, and it's what, what's really true is that you can't print money indefinitely without having a complete disruption in, in purchasing power because it's fake. And fake money doesn't work. It never works. It's never worked. There's this great experiment we're dealing with now. And and the question is, when is it going to blow up? It will blow up. 100% guaranteed. Question is when. Yeah. And I love the conversation about what's really true, because I think it's probably more important than ever. You know, we could go a bunch of different directions with this, but just even like you're saying with the media, what's interesting is, you know, you go backwards 20 years ago or 15 years ago, or even 10 years ago, the media has always existed. And it's always tried to control the narrative. I don't think that's anything new. I think the problem or the challenge that we're up against today is what is the media? Because mm-hmm. um, it's not just Fox News. It's not just CNN. You know, the tech companies are controlling the algorithms. They're controlling our feed. And I'm sitting here thinking, as you were saying, you know, half of Congress is cheering and the other half is just sitting there smug. That, that's our country. And if you think about your algorithm or your feed, you could literally be sitting right next to somebody and look at your feed 
and look at their feed and you're getting two different sides to the same story. And that's what, when you say what's true, I think this is such an important conversation because what's true is not overly clear. And that's why I think having conversations with people like you and being in groups like GoBundance, and I, I think you're heading to you know an event this weekend. That's why it's not just going to masterminds to be in masterminds. It's not joining these groups just to be in groups. I love sitting and having conversations like what's going on in the world? You know, how do I, how, how do I see through this? Like what is true? But I'm curious about your opinion on like also the echo chamber, even with like what I'm saying with the algorithms and the news and, you know, we, we tend to surround ourselves. You're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. I mean, these are the talking points that we say always from a positive perspective, trying to, you know, hype ourselves up, but it also could be a negative. Well, and, and here's something to, to really ask ourselves, how do we feel when we get challenged? You know, we, we can talk about echo chambers. And, and I, I was just thinking when somebody pushes back on me, I remember I was having a conversation with you uh, not too long ago. We were on a group call and you, you basically said something and you were right. You said, well, no, that's not what this person just said. And, and I was like, oh, and I could feel myself emotionally reacting to being called out and being wrong. And I'm like, okay. All right, so what did I just miss? But my first reaction was very instinctual. We don't want to be wrong because being wrong is potentially life-threatening if we're wrong and something eats us. Like it was very primal, that reaction. And and doing that in general and not being able or willing because of ego or, or just our tendency to think and pause for a second and say, okay, what am I missing? Could be a friend. Like you're obviously a friend. It could be somebody that you despise. And what, what we see is we see the divisiveness. And so what we do instead is we say, well, we're not going to even listen to anything that might be counter to what we believe because we don't want to be wrong. So we stay in the echo chamber and then we end up with one narrow track, one narrative. And guess what? We're fed on by systems, by the big tech, by the algorithms. And it's that, that works for them. But what we become is mindless zombies and you can't win. There's no way to win as a mindless zombie. Even when people say ignorance is bliss. Yeah, that, that, that lasts for a minute until you're homeless and broke. And I mean, I've gone through that a couple of times and it's, it's not just that, like you, you can be ignorant and, you know, and your spouse is off cheating on you all over town. You're like, Oh, I didn't know. It doesn't matter. It still matters. Like it's, you, I, I think that it's, the problem is people don't want to think they don't want to do the work because it's hard work. And yet that's what keeps you stuck in a life that you're frustrated with. And so echo chambers are not your friend, but that's where most people are, unfortunately, I think. I, I think so too. And, you know, as you're saying that, I'm just thinking back through, uh, just thinking about emotional intelligence. You know, there's been so much emphasis in the last, you know, 50 years, 100 years on intellectual intelligence, IQ. Um, but I think the emotional intelligence piece of all of this, especially in times like this, there's a lot going on in the world. And on that call that we were on with GoBundance last night, you could, you could sense some emotion there because there's literally people that, you know, their families, they haven't heard from and that's emotional. And, and so, but then, uh, you know, also just thinking through it, like which side's right and which side isn't the emotional intelligence piece of this is, is super important. That just happens to be life and death. But like you're saying, even on a day-to-day -day basis, whether it's our portfolio, whether it's here in, you know, stock news, <laughs> you, you and I were having this conversation, just even, depending on what investments you're in, watching your portfolio, you know, drop and, or, or increase like that's, that all requires emotional intelligence dealing with a team, uh, having challenging times. Like we went through with COVID where a team adjusts or, you know, things don't go as planned. This is really what it takes in life is to have a high level of emotional intelligence. And so what you were talking about, about responding, I work with a coach that talks about an anchoring mechanism. And so I've learned if I saw, if I feel myself getting triggered around something, just tapping, you know, tapping the finger. Nobody even sees me doing it, but it's an anchor for me because I know that it brings me back to, okay, what's really going on here? I don't need to react. I don't need to respond. And I don't, I think it's really easy to just kind of wax over what you just said about the importance of emotional intelligence and slowing down and not being triggered because that I, we have an opportunity to be triggered left and right right now. In every direction. I mean, left and right and up and down and backwards and forwards and and I love what you're saying about the emotional intelligence. And for me, this is where you, you see the difference between a fundamental investor and, and, a, and a technical investor. Technical means emotional because technicals are all about the emotions of markets and mm -hmm. fundamentals don't really care. Like when Warren Buffett does something, it's based on a fundamental belief in a 50-year plan. That's basically what he's doing. There's, there's no, 
something that's happening this month is sexy. Like he, he'll miss Amazon by 20 years because he's like, I just don't get it. And I don't understand the excitement. So he sticks with cherry Coke. And, and when we, when we think about our stability and our investing, there's gotta be an emotional detachment. It's gotta be a, we talked, I think we talked about this either directly or, or maybe online about the four year rule that when you start looking at things and you say, okay, Am I in this for four years or less or four years or more? And if it's less, you're speculating, which is very emotional. And you're always going to be chasing whatever's happening in the in the news. One of the differences when you shift to a longer time frame and you say, okay, I'm buying this property or I'm buying this Bitcoin or I'm buying this lump of gold or whatever you're doing. And, and you do it from a perspective of fundamental belief in the underlying thing. Then you take the emotion away. And when that thing gyrates and it's worth X dollars more tomorrow or X dollars less, you're not more excited or scared. You're simply acknowledging, okay, there's a there's a variation in the market, or you don't care because you still have the thing. And and unfortunately, most people have no intelligence around that, or like especially emotional, and it's very much a technical aspect in how they invest. And that's that's where all the stress comes from. That's where people do stupid things like they sell high and they or they, they sell low and buy high. And they you know, buy high, and then they they crashes. And if if you don't care, if you don't care, if you're buying something based on human needs like roofs and and things, you're buying housing. You don't you're not trying to flip that thing. That's why I really don't like people doing things like flipping and speculating. If that's if they think they're going to create wealth, because it's in general most people that watch a TV show around that with Chip and whoever her name is, Chip and the the other lady, Joanna, Joanna. When, and I guess they're on People Magazine now. When, when you do that, and that's your strategy, that's incredibly stressful. It's highly taxed and it's very emotional. There's not really fundamentals around that for the most part. Obviously, there's exceptions and some people have systems. And I just, I, I see people getting themselves into trouble and it's because they're chasing their glands and they're not using their mind. And that's, that's the biggest problem when your gut takes over. It really means, you know, gut means it means gave up thinking. And that's where people end up. There's kind of a theme here, you know, as you're, as you're talking through this, I mean, we're talking about emotional intelligence and then you start talking about fundamental, um, investing off of fundamentals. And I started thinking about, I started considering a lot of people that are, you know, trading stocks or investing or whatever, they're getting their information from somebody else. A lot of times this goes back to what you're talking about, about, you know, the echo chamber and where are we getting our news and where are we getting our information? You know, is it Kramer? Cause a lot of times that's not, that isn't fundamental investing. And I'm thinking about this as you're talking through it. I mean, you're investing off of his fundamentals, maybe. Um, but you know, as you think through this, the next level, I think, and you and I didn't discuss this ahead of time, but like as we're talking through this, I'm kind of mapping out like the next the thing around this is critical thinking. And we were having this conversation yesterday in the GoBundance group. Paul Sloat, somebody asked him, so like, what do you do? And he said, invest in real assets. That's a fundamental conversation, right? But so many times people will come. I've heard Kiyosaki say this so many times, like somebody will be like, what should I invest in? And he's like, I don't know. Like, you know, what kind of investor are you? Like how much money do you have? There's no critical thinking around that. And I think, I think there could be some value if we bring this down to, it's a great conversation around emotional intelligence, the fundamental investing, but also like critical thinking. So if you really just, if you play this out, which I think is what we normally do when we're war gaming situations or thinking about what's going on, whether it's inflation, whether it's the war in Ukraine, you know, Ukraine's the, Ukraine's the, you know, one of the largest suppliers of wheat or any of these things, it's just critical thinking. Like what's going to happen with oil? What's going to happen with uh, commodities that are impacted by that? It's just critical thinking. Well, and you know, you're, the thing you brought up with, with Kiyosaki, because he said that in front of us a million times, the, the critical thinking part is the hard work. And when, when somebody asks me, what should I invest in? I've got 50 or hundred or $500,000. My first question is what kind of training are you doing to build your, your, your muscle, your confidence? Like, what are you doing for you? And, and if they say, well, I'm trying to figure out what to invest in. I go, you literally shouldn't invest in an asset until you've invested in you because mm -hmm. you're, and people go, yeah, but what's going to have a good return? What's safe. And I'm, I'm thinking the problem is you're abdicating responsibility for making that decision because you're not doing the work on you first. And the, and the hard part is it's, it takes time and it takes energy. It can, it can take, it can, it does take years because it, it never ends. And in the beginning, I remember all the personal development programs I did in the beginning back you know, 20, 25 years ago. And it, that, that never stops. I do know that the ones I did back then feeded, they, they fed me and, and they gave me some guidance on, on who I was and who I was is who invested. 
So if you don't have any development of you, you're going to invest as a, basically a chicken head. You're not going to have any any foundational fundamental understanding. Your, your thermostat's going to be off. And what I mean by that is for every all of us have a thermostat. It's our wealth thermostat on what we think that we're deserving of or what we're capable of. And if we think that that's at a $200,000 net worth, there's some number where you hit it, you will blow yourself up and sabotage yourself. And if you don't do the work, you're going to be stuck there. And the doing the work and then going out there and testing things and getting beat up and, and this whole process, that's how you raise the thermostat. And you can't just, I love Tony Robbins, but you can't just go to a Tony Robbins event and say, my thermostat went to 1 billion. It went from 200,000 to 1 billion and I'm good. Like that's not how it works. It is a process. It's like you can't go to the gym and drop a 400 pound squat rack on your head and think, okay, well, I was a part of that squat rack. Like you got to go do it and build it up, man. You can't go there from, from beginning to, to the max and think that it's not going to be damaging. And that's, that's what I see people doing, going and investing with a max. Okay. All my money's in. I'm like, yeah, but what are you investing in? Let me go look. I don't remember. Oh, great. That's not going to end good. It's so true. And, you know, just even thinking about the, the fundamental conversation, I'm, I'm circling back to inflation and how many times have you been asked in the last 12 months, like, is it a good time to buy real estate? Everybody's looking for the crystal ball. I had um, Scott Groves on my podcast this last week and it was very enlightening because, you know, he's a mortgage guy and, and, but I, I love it too, because he's very controversial, but, and so this could be the echo chamber too. Everybody's looking, you know, from a fundamental perspective, when we talk about inflation and real estate, like, I don't know that it, I don't know that it really matters if, if you play this thing out long-term, but it's setting, it's picking the side. And there's, when we talk about emotional intelligence, this is where it gets really challenging. And even the education piece, I'm so hesitant to tell people to invest in real estate right now, but I'm hesitant to tell people to invest in real estate always, unless we're just like in this crazy climb, but nobody knows what's going to happen. Like nobody has a crystal ball. The one thing that, and I'm curious what your opinion is on this. Is it a good is it a good time to invest in real estate? I mean, it, it, I, it's like our, our friend Tim Gertz says, well, it depends. You know, in, in accounting, it's always, well, taxi, tax stuff. It depends. And, and what when you have fundamental shifts in society. So, for example, when you have a shift, baby boomers getting older, what are you going to have? You're going to have more healthcare medical needs with this. So, potentially, that's health facilities are a great place to hold long term for the next 30, 40, 50 years. It, it, and one of the things we've talked about over the last couple of years, as people shift online more and more, are retail things going to grow or go away? And there's an argument about that. What Things we know are not going to stop are housing. We know, And people are not going to stop buying their crap on Amazon. Amazon keeps making it easier. So between housing and storage, there are certain things and medical facilities. There are pharmacies. Like there are things that are they're always, 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 you're not going to just stop having housing. What will change with housing is things like government intervention, government doing things like subsidies or restricting, capping amounts you can charge for rents. We've seen that in California. You've seen it in different places, housing, rent controls. So there are things that are going to impact the investment. It doesn't mean the impact, the, the investment doesn't work well. Here's what it comes down to, Mike. It, it's all about whoever's running the investment. And this is where if you haven't developed yourself and you're managing the investment, you're in trouble because you got a ding dong at the, at the helm. On the other side, if you're investing with somebody and you're handing your money to somebody, you better make sure that they have enough ability to adapt to environments that change because we know that for sure is going to change the inside the investment. Yeah. Housing is great. Will be forever. It will change. It will be impacted by government probably more than anything over the coming years. And so I think we have to understand that it's about how you execute on whatever the investment is, not on what the investment is. Bitcoin is good or bad. It depends on the investor. Like you said, what kind of investor are you? Mm -hmm. And that's the first thing you got to figure out. If you're a crazy, there are people that are daredevils that they love the juice. And I'm like, you literally invest as if you're jumping out of planes. You should jump out of a plane, just not me, because I, I tend to have accidents. But everybody else, if that's where you get your juice is in investing, yeah, probably I just go to Vegas or find a hobby. Because if you don't, you're going to end up, you and your money are going to be quickly departed. I've, it's, it's interesting that we're, you know, having this conversation. Um, well, maybe it isn't. I was going to say, because we, we didn't plan about this ahead of time, but this is kind of where my brain's been the last couple of weeks when I think about, you know, the fundamental side of it, the critical thinking, the emotional side of it. I've been thinking to myself for, I'm going to say at least months, but maybe even longer when you drive around and you see the amount of apartments that are being built 
and you see the amount of houses that are being built and you see the prices of these houses and you see the prices that apartments are selling at apartment complexes. I'm like, we, there's part of me, and this is the emotional intelligence piece. We are schizo. And I think when you were talking about, when you're talking about the echo chamber in Congress, I think we need to do this in our own brain because there's part of me that thinks, you know, it's challenge. This is critical thinking though. There's part of me that's like, man, I don't know, everything's expensive and, and I don't know what it's going to end like. But then there's another part of me that's like, well, we're short on all these units and everything else. So the critical thinking part of me, the emotional intelligence part of me sits back and says, okay, what are the fundamentals? And I don't know if you, I started looking over the last couple of weeks, there was 300, there was less than 350,000 apartment units that came online in 2021. When I look around, if you would have asked me, if you would have asked me like how many apartments have been built, like in my brain, I, I think there's millions because everywhere I look, um, I just see apartments going up and I see, you know, but there's not, there was only three, there was less than 350,000 apartment units that came online last year. That's not enough. And so my emotional brain tells me, oh my God, we're overbuilt. We're, we're overpriced. Like there's a crash coming like this has to drop. But then when you start fundamentally looking at, you know, the statistics behind it and we're 4 million houses short, single family houses, and you look at the, the number of apartments that are coming online, which again, my emotional brain says they're everywhere. We're overbuilt. It's not true. I'm in Dallas today and, and you go to, you walk out in certain areas and you will literally see thousands of apartments in one like one area, thousands and thousands under construction. And I'm looking at it going, same thing. There must be millions of these things. And the reality is to what you just said, 10% of the gap was filled this last year, which means we have a 10 year problem just to get to up to where, what we need now. Well, there's going to be more units required in 10 years. Cause I don't think the population is going to shrink. And so you, you start thinking about it fundamentally that way. And it, you start going, wait, so to, to your, the, the point you're making about an echo chamber, yeah, you and I being, if I, if we're just in Dallas or if we, if we just see if we're in Miami or wherever, you might think everything is just going crazy and there's there's maybe oversupply. And, and the truth is there's, if you look at the actual numbers and that's why I like numbers so much because numbers don't lie. They tell a story and they're real, not necessarily pro formas. I like the actual numbers. I like the autopsies and I like the reality. I, because you, we've talked about this a lot over the years that you can make a spreadsheet say anything you want. So we, when, when we're all looking at deals and opportunities, you can make that thing look saucy, but it, it doesn't really make any difference if, you, if it doesn't get executed on. And what's more important is to understand the reality, like the 350,000 and the 4 million. Those are real numbers. There's nothing that you can't just like, that is what it is. Like there, there is no way to tweak that projecting forward. You can play with a lot of numbers about what that's going to mean with cap rates. I, I think most people miss out on the actual reality. And, and here's one of the things I'm having a hard time with Mike. I've been saying for six, seven, eight years, man, it's overpriced when I talk about real estate, thinking about it. And so meanwhile, I missed out on six, seven years. And in that period of time, a lot of people got rich. I would maybe a different word. They made a bunch of money. I don't know that they're necessarily rich because a lot of people, when you make a bunch of money, just like I did in the two thousands, you think you're smart. And what you did is you caught a tidal wave. And, and when that happens, it doesn't make you smart. It makes your timing good. It doesn't mean your timing won't be off down the road. And when you keep doubling down, which was what most people do. I remember when I had my houses and one of my mentors said, y'all should get a bunch of us. Y'all should take some money off the table because he had lost his hundred million dollars and he's like, trust me, these things cycle. And we're like, no, we're making too much money. So of course we kept all our money in and guess what happened? <laughs> <laughs> it's so crazy. And, and, and then you factor in too, I, I think we've probably talked about this on the live show, but just like what Morgan Housel says, like things that have never happened before happen all the time. There's, there's this schizo side of me, but then there's a the comment like where people say, you know, history repeats itself. And I was just having this conversation with somebody else, like, even if history doesn't directly repeat itself, like it, there's a version of it that's always going to happen with these cycles. But man, what I'm trying to reconcile now is the amount of money that's been, this is more around timeline because at some point in time, the music's got to stop. I mean, I'm guessing maybe it doesn't, but the timing of it is what's really interesting with me. I, th and that, that's, that's challenging. Like when does, when does the music stop? Is there a time where 
the Federal Reserve stops printing? Is there a time? Because that is a huge driver. When when there is a freeze up of liquidity, that definitely causes problems because our entire system is a debt system. And so debt, it's like when you, people talk about the stock market all the time. And why is it that we're not talking about the bond market all the time? The bond market is what, 10 times bigger than the, than the equities markets? And because it's our system is based on debt. And, and little micro changes in debt, BIPs, you know, a hundredth of a percentage changes in, in rates on things can completely shake or collapse markets. We don't talk about it. We talk about the sexiness of the stock market because most people are like, look, the bond market's terrible. You make 1%. Or that's kind of the assumption. And if I want to make money, I got to go invest in the fangs, you know, these stocks are. So we, the, the point of that, though, is that we've got all this, this entire system with all this debt, and we're not talking about the reality of it. We're talking about Ukraine and mm-hmm. we're getting distracted. We've got what, 250, $300 trillion in, in the derivatives market. That's, that's just out there. And there's no way to accurately figure out with the risk exposure, you have one little thing that happens and a trillion or two or three gets wiped out and it wipes out the whole system because everything is interlocked. We don't talk about that. And when I say wiped out, it just means it freezes it. Like in 08, we were on the, we were on the precipice of having ATM machines and Visa cards not working. We were probably 24 hours based on all the conversations I've had with economists and people in the IMF and the World Bank over the years. We were that close. It was within a day of the whole system locking up. That could happen. What does that mean? It means technically we have a blip and it's a problem. Does that mean we're not going to need housing five years from now? No. It just means you might have a very rough spot and it might be disrupted. You might not be able to get food. I mean, things can happen. But humans aren't just going to vaporize. Housing isn't going to just vaporize. And that's where you, when you go back to fundamentals, it calms the conversation down. You're like, okay, well, if the Fed does something stupid, guess what? They will. <laughs> then you just deal with it and you know fundamentally, hey, my rental house is going to keep being rented. It's going to be adjusted and it'll keep being rented. So I think we've got to calm this stuff down by looking at the, at the foundational pieces instead of chasing every little flash across the screen. Yeah. And even on the calming it down and looking, I, I found myself saying this, you know, if you would have asked me this three years ago, actually, when we first started our, our pod group three years ago or whatever it was, I remember one of the first calls that we were going through, everybody was like, you know, what's your risk level? Like how much do you want in reserves? And I've always been pretty like, you know, didn't need a lot of reserves. I've always had food. I'd always had like gold and silver type reserves, that kind of stuff. But when it came to cash on hand, like I'm pretty, if it's, if it's sitting, like we need to deploy this stuff. But lately, just back to the fundamentals on real estate, I've found myself just thinking and, and saying, and when somebody asks me, if something happens, if there's a blip to your point, I don't, I don't think that real estate, I don't, it doesn't really matter what I think, but I don't know that real estate's going to have this major crash or implosion but do we need to be able to get through some period of cash flow time where maybe your tenants aren't paying you? You know, COVID, like eviction moratorium. We were fortunate, like most of us in the apartment space and mobile home park space and all that. Most people got paid. I actually think that, you know, it was smaller landlords that probably really struggled. Um, but most people paid their rent. In and again, this is a this is a generalized statement. I know there's a lot of markets, a lot of states where that wasn't the case, but I think when you're invested in the right areas and in the right segment, which again, this is all fundamentals. I think at the end of the day though, as long as you can cash flow through a certain period of time, that's one of the things that we really need to start talking about is like, how much do you have in reserves to where if a tenant isn't paying you for three months or six months, can you get through that? Because as long as you've got long-term debt, that's by the way, half of what inflation is, or maybe even more, uh, depending on where this goes to. And the asset price is probably going to continue to go up over time. If it's maybe not like it has the last couple of years where it's 10 or 15 or 20% in some markets, but it's probably going to continue to go up. I've never been an appreciation investor where I'm like, okay, I'm going to count on it going up 5% every year, but it's probably likely going to go up. I think there's just really two things when we talk about fundamentals. Can you cash flow through a downturn? And how long is that? Nobody knows, but can you cash flow for a certain period of time? And then do you have enough equity in the property? My, my question to you on all of that, Scott was saying this last week. He said that we're not, it's not the same as 08 because the, the funny loans are not as prevalent. He said, everybody has so much equity. And when people first started saying this a few years ago, I was like, okay, everybody has so much equity. Like they've put 5% down or 10%. There, there could be a five or 10 or even 20% correction. But when, when 
when people have put five or 10 or even 20% down on their homes, and then houses are appreciating 25% over the last couple of years, there's potentially a lot of equity in the market. There, there is, a, I mean, there, there is a lot of equity and it, it, this reminds me of a, of a quote. I, I think, I don't remember if it was Buffett or whoever it was, but the, the quote is that the, the markets can be irrational longer than you can remain solvent. Mm. And that's, that's coming back to your point. If I, I got in trouble with some of my investments early on because I thought, oh, this is great. I can take on any amount of debt. It doesn't make any difference because it's about cash flow. When my cash flow turned out to be wrong, and this was, I had some condos that had homeowners associations, and I couldn't get these things to, to cash flow. The rents wouldn't cover what my outflow was. And, and and the problem was because I was I didn't care how much debt I had, I couldn't sell them either without writing a check. And so you have to start challenging some of these assumptions like, oh, it doesn't matter how much debt I have. I think a lot of people think it doesn't matter how much debt because I can. It's things are moving up. And, and even if you think it's going to cash flow, what if you're wrong? And guess what? We're going to be wrong. Like that's, this isn't school where 90% is likely. You're going to be more than 10% wrong in general in life, especially in investing, like it's just how it's going to be. So we've got to, we got to start asking that question. What, what's an appropriate number for liquidity and how much debt should I be carrying? And if, if you look at your stuff and you're hyper leveraged right now, I, like one of the dumbest things I, I see now, and I probably was not this th- this way in terms of thinking years ago, was people that take their primary residence and they leverage that thing to death to go invest. I'm like, why would you do that? Why would you, like that's their forever plan. I'm always gonna use this money because it's cheap money. I'm not saying it's not a, a thing that has a season. What I'm saying is people have this mentality like I've got to use this equity all the time. Having a lazy balance sheet, meaning you're you're not necessarily deploying the capital or the equity all the time is not necessarily terrible. Ask what happens when you can actually sleep at night. How much of a better life do you have? And I think that that people are are chasing stuff and they're saying, oh, I've got all this equity. Yeah, but this maybe that came out of nowhere. And so maybe it's not necessarily real. What happens? You pull that equity because it popped up the last two or three years and you go invest it and then the market corrects 20 or 30% and then you realize your negative equity. How does that feel? Been in those, in those shoes before it freaking sucks and it stresses you out and it can easily go that way. And it can, quite frankly, it can go that way a lot faster than the equity appreciation. I think it's important too, to understand what seasons we're in as you're like talking about, I was thinking back to a younger guy, you know, my, my, myself 20 years ago, just starting a business nothing to lose, uh, no equity in anything. Um, my business wasn't worth anything. I didn't have any real estate investments. Like you literally have nothing to lose. And so you kind of go all in. You're this like, it's wild, wild west, right? I remember literally telling Kara, like, what's the worst thing that could happen if my business fails? I go back to work for the guy that I was working for last month, which is was kind of like my worst case scenario anyway. But that's when you have nothing to lose. And as you're saying that too, I'm like, we have to be really cognizant of not only the season that we're in, uh, in the world, because we're part of this macroeconomic system, but we also have to understand the micro world that, that we live in our world and what season we're in. Because as you start to gain that equity and you have more and more to lose, let's say, you really got to be cognizant of that. If you've got $10 to your name or you're worth negative $10 and there's nothing to lose, like go all in, figure that out. But eventually you start, you know, gaining equity and being worth something. And you have to start thinking through a different lens and use that knowledge and information and wisdom and the emotional intelligence and the fundamental knowledge that you've gained through the process to make better decisions. I, I totally agree. It's, it's, it's fascinating to think about the, the micro stuff. Just you know, when we, you, the, the way that you're describing that, I, I've got a mentor that talks about the 10 year plan and I talk about the 10 year plan. He, he, he loves to go take on debt with a 10 year horizon, meaning I'm going to go take on debt for a new building, for a house, for something. And, and you know, in 10 years, I have a plan to kill this debt. And it's, it's fascinating because a lot of people go, I'm just going to stay in debt. It's like, okay. And we've heard that. I think Kiyosaki talks about how he loves the hundreds of millions of dollars in debt. I'm like, I get it. And there's, there's also something about where you're at in your life. Like I'm not interested in having hundreds of millions of dollars of debt when I'm 70 years old. Like that just doesn't, that's not the right place in, but that's the micro that's the micro thinking or the the internal like what season is it in, what season am i in and and th- when you think about going and acquiring assets or investing are you do you want that ride do you, i think a lot of people have gotten really screwed up about thinking that their investing is about the price of the asset versus what the asset is doing or what the this this time horizon back to the fundamentals 
when when I I was looking at, at cryptocurrency and and recently it it had a it had a correction and it went down into the 30s and I was like okay and the question I asked myself is how does this impact me today if if Bitcoin goes to ten thousand what does that do to me today nothing I'm running my business I'm not a trader on the floor I'm not I, I don't need to sell this next week and when we can detach from the those fluctuations and we say okay well. What, am, what do I, what can I actually control? I can't control Bitcoin. I'm not Michael Saylor or the Federal Reserve. They can write a $50 billion check and actually sway the market. So I have no influence on Bitcoin. I don't have any influence on the apartment market. Like I'm never going to buy 100,000 units in one week. What can I impact, impact? And like you talked about your business and the businesses that you and I have run, we have the ability to impact those. We all have a business. It's called the economy of us. And, and, I, and I love when people will switch gears and stop focusing so much on what the market is doing and what they can do internally as their own market. It's such a good thing that you, the parallel that you brought up with Bitcoin too, because even when there was a, you know, went down into the thirties, it didn't really affect you because you weren't forced to sell. And fundamentally you believe that it's going to go back up at some point in time. What's interesting back to the debt conversation. And, and it was that parallel was, was interesting when it comes to real estate, because that's where the differentiator is. There's a lot of benefits to real estate, the ability to leverage. These are the old talking points. Like remember years ago that real estate gurus telling us like, you know, go into the bank and try to borrow money for Bitcoin. Well, it wasn't Bitcoin then, but like stocks or whatever. And your banker's not, that's why real estate is so amazing because you can leverage it. But back to the thing that you said about Bitcoin, what's interesting when that dropped, it didn't affect you because you didn't have to sell. But the problem is that's what I was saying with cash flow and having reserves, because the issue with real estate is if it did drop and you're forced to sell because of short-term debt or because you can't cash flow it, that would have been the issue with your Bitcoin. If you were forced to sell at 30, you might've had problems. And, and a lot of people are, Mike, they're, they're, they're doing these, there's a lot of lending that's, that's more and more readily available. In fact, it's super easy. I've done it a number of times where you can take your crypto and you can lever up to 70%. Well, guess what? When you have a correction that is 30 or 40 or 50%, we've, we're, we're in a, right now it's about 35, 40%, but we've gone Bitcoin as an example, because it's the biggest one out there, went from 70,000 basically down to less than 35. So we're talking a 50% correction. If you had leveraged your Bitcoin and you bought it in the 60s and you had leveraged it 50, 60%, you got a margin call. You got a cash call where, and so the debt can become a huge problem. That's actually one of the interesting things that happened this last week with Bitcoin. The reason that we saw this surge and this breakthrough from into the 40s was because people had shorted it. So in the in the markets, in the futures market, people had shorted Bitcoin and there was a an uptick and the uptick happened so fast that it triggered these automated systems to cover these short sellers. And when they had to go and buy, they had to buy in mass so quickly. It was like an hour. It, it went up. Bitcoin was up 15, 20% in like a day or two. And that was because of short covering. So you can get into a lot of trouble trying to play with the markets. Those guys aren't playing with fundamentals. They're playing, they're trying to be very technical, which is what most of the markets are now. It's very technical. It's all bots and algorithms. And when there's, it's like the derivatives market. If you have a little blip of a trillion or two, that can ripple through and, and crush the entire thing. Same thing with, with Bitcoin. You have a little bit of a move. It doesn't take much. Four or 5% moves up pretty fast because a big buyer happens. Guess what? The short sellers get squeezed. And that can happen with any market. There's nothing that's that, that it can't happen to. It doesn't matter whether it's the bond market, crypto, the real estate. Like Things happen. Uh, it's So we've got to be thinking. This is back to the thinking idea. What okay, what could happen? What else? And what do I have the ability to impact? And what, what can I move maneuver around so that it doesn't impact me? And just, and, and think through that. You're never going to have the perfect play where there's no risk. I think that that's crazy when people try to try to figure out a risk free, free thing. There's always a risk. I mean, even gold has a risk because if you're like, okay, I've got this gold and I'm in the U S I mean, there was a time back in the thirties where People that had gold were told you can't trade that in for dollars that you're going to need to use. And reality is you couldn't go use the gold to go buy something. I still like gold, but it doesn't mean that things can't happen that crush your risk-free thing that you've got. So that's why having everything in one place is probably not the ideal thing because if something out of your control happens, then what do you do? So we've, we've got it. I guess I'm saying we've got to use our brains more. Like we're, we're just, I think we get into these echo chambers like we started talking about in the beginning and, and we think that we're right. And then we're dead wrong. It, it literally just comes down to what you just said. I think it's so important to just really think through. I don't, 
And it makes sense because people spend so much time just, you know, I'm not opposed to watching Netflix or whatever. I like a good show too, but we spend so much time with just like no quiet space, no thinking space, no, no downtime to just critically think through this. And I'm so fortunate. Uh, I feel fortunate to have, you know, people that you can have these conversations in, but I also spend a lot of time thinking through this, just even like we're talking regionally, there's seasons in life, but even back to regionally, when we were talking about, you know, the micro perspective, it's the same thing you were saying, uh, whether it's being all invested in gold or Bitcoin or whatever, or even certain markets, it, the, the echo chamber could be where you live too, because I've, I've talked to so many people that think that their market is the best market in the world. And in reality, it could be for a time and a season, but I think we have to be careful with that too. And again, I, I feel like I'm like having a schizo conversation, but I've even been looking at Austin. Karen and I were talking about this the other day. I could, if you, not that I want to do this right now, but if you asked me to name off, I could name a hundred people that I know that have moved to Austin, Texas in the last four months. And when you look at that, where are these people coming from? And, and you know, the housing supply and is it going to slow down anytime soon? When you look at that gigafactory that, that Tesla built, that's not even completely open yet. And you look at all these companies that are relocating here and bringing their people here. And this goes back to a fundamental analysis too. Why, why? Well, where are all these companies coming from and why are they coming here? And it's not necessarily just an Austin thing. I think it's a Texas thing or I don't remember. I think it was Joe Lonsdale that was talking about, um, you know, it used to be countries that won and now we're talking about states that win. And so when we think about the macro perspective of, you know, the U.S. and its economy as a whole, there's certain countries that we think about winning. But the conversation we started having a year and a half, two years ago was there's states that are going to win. And within states, there's cities that are going to win. And so we have to come out of that macro thinking and and really narrow down into what we truly believe and make a decision for ourselves. We, we do. And we, and we also we have to be really careful with assumptions. And one of the, one of the assumptions I thought was everybody's going to leave California. And, and it's funny to me because there's a lot of reasons that people are and companies are leaving California and a lot of move into Texas and, and Tennessee. And, and at the same time, I just heard, I saw a thing that Brendan Bouchard, one of the biggest influencers in the world that teaches a lot of people how to be influencers. And he was in Puerto Rico and then he, he's literally moving back or he just moved back to California. And I, I found that fascinating because you go to Puerto Rico so that you can pay no taxes. And he's going back to California where, as far as I know, he's not a big real estate guy. So he has millions of dollars in income and he's going to be paying half of that in taxes. Rationally, that's crazy. I'm going to go from zero to 50, 60%, probably 60 in California. It's going to be, I mean, that's reality. So why would somebody do that? Because we're people, because we're emotional, because it's not just about the taxes. I, I know that... Peter Schiff will say this a lot and he, he loves Puerto Rico and it's, and he pays no taxes. And, and I, I laugh and I'm like, okay, yeah, there's some good things about Puerto Rico. It doesn't mean everybody's going to move there. It means a lot of people have moved there. There's a massive housing shortage. In fact, it's crazy that housing has gone up three to four times. Like it was 500,000. Now it's 2 million in a year or two. Like that's how crazy it is. And and yet people are leaving Puerto Rico and they're not, they're not, not everybody's staying there because, why? I, apparently the weather is that good in Napa. I don't know if that's where, where Brendan is, but it's we have to be careful about assuming everybody's going to go someplace because I've thought that everybody's going to move, move out of California. And yet what's happening with prices of housing in California? They continue to go up. Mm-hmm. Like So assumptions can make an ass out of everyone Like because you just go, wait, it makes sense as an, when you do an autopsy going backwards. Oh, okay. I, I can see this. Easy for people to do studies of of time periods and look at like the Harry Dunn does this with, with demographics and people and, and what's likely to happen. That makes a lot of sense. And in, you know, like when he talks about people going to ocean towns and, and mountain towns, okay, I get that. Cause boomers want to go into smaller community like colleges. I get all that. I think a lot of what we've been talking about and we like just in general thinking logically, we think certain things are going to happen and I, they are happening. We're seeing the evidence in Texas and at the same time, when I see somebody going back to pay 60% in tax, taxes, I'm thinking, what am I missing right now? It's it's interesting too, as you're talking through um, just even the assumptions. The other side of that is, yeah, I was thinking back through um, when COVID hit and, and the GoBundance, we were all hands on deck and we're all trying to figure out what's going on. And, and you're talking about the assumptions around California and these things that we automatically think through we think are going to happen 
but the other side of it is I would rather, I would rather critically think and make some decisions and be wrong about it than just be frozen too. Because I think he who adjusts faster wins. There's no doubt that it's all about how fast you adapt. I mean, think of the, the, the thing that comes to mind is going to the moon. How, how much of the time going to the moon was the, that vessel on track? 3%. The other 97% it's off and it's being adjusted. If you said, no, we got to get this thing like at like 90% right. You're going to be heading towards Venus. Yeah. Like you're, it's not going to work. So you've got to be willing to adapt all the time. And, and unfortunately our system has set us up to learn a skill that like the whole thing is for decades and decades, teach somebody a skill and then they have that skill and then they're good for the next 30, 40 years. And we've got to be willing to adapt in investing or in business or in anything, you, even in, in relationships, you think about relationships, people come together and over time, people shift, they change. And so you've got to be open to adapting. If you think I can do it my way forever, uh, that doesn't usually work. Like you've got to be willing to, to be flexible and, and keep working on yourself and your thinking. Like that's probably the most important thing that people can do is work on their thinking indefinitely and find a way to work on it with other people with tools because we're just like we we think about it and we like okay well i need to work on my thinking then what do you do like we this is where we need to engage other people and i what one of the most dangerous things is being smart because you think you got it all covered and so i <laughs> i find the people that look at themselves as kind of dumb they're like well, I need to figure it out and I'm going to go ask questions because I don't know. And the people that are the PhDs, they get themselves in trouble because they assume they know everything. I was thinking earlier when you uh, mentioned the, uh, all the shorts to cover and everything on Bitcoin, I was wondering if, uh, if Mr. Schiff was in on that and then not that he would short Bitcoin, but he's just <laughs> such like a, you know, such a hater. I'm like, geez, it's crazy. Well, and we, it's, it's fascinating because I was, I was looking at a, a report from Chase Bank and, and some of the analysts with Chase and Goldman and, and these different institutions looking at the, the trends and, and where things are going. And like, it's interesting if you think about Bitcoin has this seven, eight hundred billion dollar market capitalization and you look at gold has a nine, ten trillion dollar market cap and you start looking at the fundamentals. Where is this heading? And you look at what's happening in Ukraine and you look at Russia being knocked out of the 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 system, the banking system. So what who's getting hurt? Individuals. Putin is not getting hurt. Like Putin's lifestyle is not changing. But what's getting what's getting impacted are the common people, just people that don't have that that aren't oligarchs. Even the oligarchs are being hammered, but who cares? So it went from four billion to two billion because two billion is locked up by the US Department of Justice or whatever. So what what does this say? It says we need a better system where we're in control. Justin Trudeau did this where he locked up people's assets because they were donating to a convoy, a peaceful convoy. So you start asking, what can I do? You got to have control of your stuff. If you don't hold it, you don't own it. And and having physical possession of Bitcoin, as that's more adopted, and I, we may have talked about this recently, more institutions are investing billions of dollars in their systems to be able to custody, to be able to trade crypto. What? Why are they doing that? Because they hate their money? No, they love money. They're freaking obsessed. Like that's all they think about. They'll cheat and steal and rob and pillage because they want more money. So why are they doing that? Because they see where this is going. And so for people that go, well, I hate Bitcoin, Peter Schiff, you, you're missing out on what's going on. And, and he's going to laugh at me if he ever heard that, but he's wrong that we are fundamentally shifting into a place that's not going to be fiat based. It's just, it's just not, that's, that's the, that's the future, I believe. Yeah. Well, and it makes, it makes, it makes a ton of sense. And when you think about that, like, just like you said, fundamentally, I'm thinking about what you said with Bitcoin. And I think you said the other day, like some, one of, I think it was Chase that's like projecting 450 or something at some point. Was that you that said that? Yeah. Chase, Chase's, their projection is 650,000 near term. And, and you think, so here's, here's perspective right now. It's, it's 42, 43,000. That's about 13, 14 X. And, and so is that crazy? No, Bitcoin went from, went up 10 X in a year when it went from, it went from 6,000 to 60,000. And so, and it's done that repeatedly. So why is this different when you start looking at things logarithmically? So there's a percentage change and then there's a logarithmic change and, and there's an absolute amount that people change, that things change. So if something goes from 10 to 20, that doubles. And then, you know, it, it looks, it doesn't look, it looks ominous to go from like really hard. How do you go from 40,000 to 650? Well, going from $1 to $15, that's more than the 40 to 650. So, or you know, like 
we have to start thinking a little different. The problem is our brains are biological and we've evolved in a linear fashion. And so our brains think linearly. We think about absolute terms versus the actual logarithmic change of exponential evolution. That's what we're in right now. So going to 650 is not crazy. In fact, I think it's pretty likely. I think I've said this before, but I remember sitting in my, my mother-in-law's uh, kitchen, listening to Kara's cousin, like, in 2011 or 2014 or something. And, and it was when candy crush came out and his, her cousin was telling us to buy Bitcoin. She was talking about this new Bitcoin thing. And he's like, you need to buy Bitcoin. And it was like $7 or something. I can't remember how much it was. And, and all, I was so obsessed with candy crush. We were all playing candy crush and didn't listen. <laughs> and, and then you look at Bitcoin today and it's like $40. And then you hear, you know, six fifty. there's always this, like, I don't, it's a fundamental conversation though, right? Because everything could go up and everything could go down. But when you look at the, again, just the fundamental aspect of this and see this progression and the fact that, you know, the world is looking for just back to your conversation around the fiat currency and everything else, the problem, the challenge with gold and all of that. And I've heard this over and over and you're the gold expert, but it's not, it, it's not like, it's just so uh, archaic, right? That's probably the reason why we partially went away from it. But Bitcoin being the way that it is, like it just makes sense to me. And when I think about even what you're just saying about it going from 40,000 to 650,000, and we just think that's insane. But look at oil today. I remember thinking about oil a year ago, year and a half ago, thinking, man, this could be a good investment because oil's not going away permanently. And look where it's at today. If I would have put, you know, 100 grand into oil, it, it'd be looking pretty good. Yeah, there, there are things that you can hear the hyperbole and the conjecture from people, these talking heads and the politicians and like, yes, we're, we're are we shifting into a green revolution? I see. I, yeah, that's happening. Are we going away from oil this year or next year or this decade? Absolutely not. And, mm -hmm. and so what we need to start thinking about that stuff and, and the network effect and, and the actual, like we have to have energy and we know that things are more valuable when there's more people in a network. It's why Facebook's so valuable. It's why Bitcoin is getting more valuable. And think about it. We have to, this is why you have to work on your thinking. You have to think mm -hmm. about your thinking and work on it and evolve it. Because if you don't do that, you're not going to see through the eyes, through the lens from a vantage point that's actually true. It's going to be skewed, flawed in an echo chamber of delusion. Thinking about your thinking. I love it. So yes, good. Sir. <laughs> so good. <laughs> I mean, like, I feel like that's it. Thinking about your thinking. <laughs> It's, it's 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 really fascinating to to do that and people are if you're thinking what am i thinking about like how do how do i think about my thinking this is like one of those loops one of those images where you see the image going and it's like this crazy thing but the the reality is that when you can start thinking about your thinking it empowers you at a level that is is truly exponential and it almost separates you from the emotional state that we are as humans as these as these animals running around making crazy decisions so take that away today think about your thinking, find a way to think about your thinking and do it more. It's so good. And just, I think we started off today with, and by the way, we don't, we don't even talk about what we're going to talk about. It's good. Mike, Mike Moody asked me before the show, like what's on the agenda today? I have no idea, but we started the show by talking about the echo chamber and the different voices and the 50% on this side and that side. And I think just, you know, wrapping it up with the thinking about your thinking, it's so good to not be in those echo chambers and so number one, to challenge our own thinking, but number two, to be around people that challenge our thinking as well. And I think, I think I shared this with you, but over Christmas, me and Kara and the kids, we, we decided one night to have a debate. Did I tell you this? Yeah. Didn't you guys have to take the opposite side? Yeah. Yeah. And so like we, we broke up into groups and then, um, the other four that weren't doing the debate got to choose what the subject was and they would just tell you what side and you'd end up arguing you know, whatever it was that they wanted you to argue. And it was such a valuable lesson because it really caused you, you know, to, to not think about, because this is what I'm always arguing. Like I'm always arguing about my, my, my thinking. And that really, since then, it's just kind of shifted the way I want to be open. I want to see others' viewpoints. So think about your thinking. And, and join the debate from the other side. That'll make you stretch. It'll make you pucker up a little bit too. And it is incredibly valuable because then, you actually understand something differently. It's not just 
like you have to think about it. That's one of the problems with people that have an echo chamber or they say I'm right and they don't look at the other thing. People that say capitalism is the way and I'm never going to look at socialism or talk about it because that's stupid. The problem is you're missing the point of the other side and, 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 you, and it'll actually make your argument stronger for wherever you are if you're willing to figure out how you argue the other side. Like it's really powerful to do. Most people won't do it. Even super smart people, they're just like, nope, because that's stupid. Like, okay, well, that's that makes you dumber actually. So crazy. I'm going to go find somebody that believes what I believe exactly and try to argue with them. <laughs> I used to do that as a kid, Mike, and it really pissed everybody off. <laughs> and it's, so, maybe, <laughs> But it's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like just, you know, seeing things from a different viewpoint. So as always, um, very enlightening. Appreciate the conversation. Um, Fun. Yeah. Good stuff. Awesome. Well, looking forward to next week. See what we dive into then. Yeah. Be good. Enjoy it out there. All right, man. Take care. Thanks. See ya.